On December the 4th, 1976, in Bangui, um, which was the capital of Central uh, African Empire, the world witnessed the congregation, uh, or you could say the coronation, rather, of His Imperial Majesty, Bacasa I, who out of emulation to his hero, Napoleon, crowned himself as emperor of the nation after being the president for some 11 years. Uh, the event cost $25 million. That is in 1976 in Africa. Well, at 10 after 10 in the morning, uh, the trumpets and the drums uh, began and announced the uh, entrance of this uh, man. And it began with eight of his children that is, eight of his 29 children walking the royal carpet to their seats, uh, followed by uh, Bacasa II, his heir, uh, who wore a white admiral uniform. And then he arrives on this, uh, this exquisite coach pulled by six prize horses. Um, it was a remarkable event. Um, Within the marine band started blaring the sacred march of his majesty and, and then Emperor Bokasa I came forth and he was cloaked in this 32 pound robe that was decorated with 785,000 pearls matched with pearl slippers. I don't know what man would wear pearl slippers, but he did. And on his head was a crown of laurel wreath which was a symbol of favor with the gods. And so he makes his way into the ceremony, and then he sits down on his $2.5 million throne and takes off his laurel wreath and places on his head his crown, which was $2.5 million as well, and had on top of the crown an 80-carat diamond. And at 10.43 a.m., the Central African Empire had a new emperor. Well, two years later, when he was out of country, uh, the French accomplished a successful coup against this man. Um, but it was too late for many of his victims because... Um, some 200 children were executed during his reign because they did not like the price of the uniforms they were being charged, and they complained about it. Bacasa did all he could do. Um, uh, Bacasa did all he could do to have an enduring kingdom, but he failed. And this is the way it is with all kingdoms, all kings and kingdoms of this world. Uh, one day, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Um, and that means that every kingdom is, has a termination date, including ours. Each one of us, apart from saving grace, have a kingdom we have constructed. And that kingdom is one day going to end. It's going to find a termination date. But not so with Israel's long-for anointed king who in the end will be standing through his exaltation. But paradoxically, it will come through a successful coup against him. 
A coup that's already begun in our passage, a coup behind the scenes. You've seen these questions being posed to, to Jesus. Uh, these questions are intended to stop him, to, to expose him, to get him in trouble with the Roman government, to uh, get him to lose his favor with the people. In fact, uh, you can see at the end of chapter 19 um, what their goals were. It says the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And then in chapter 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. And yet, as we've seen and as we will see today, Jesus isn't avoiding his fate. He came in to Jerusalem like a lamb led to the slaughter. In fact, with every question that's been posed to him, he is sealing his fate more and more and more. In fact, he digs his hole even deeper today by addressing an issue, a concern, that was perhaps the greatest concern for all the Jewish people, and that regarded the coming of Messiah. The coming of the Christ. The Jewish people's hopes were bound up in the Christ, the Messiah. Their hope was a Messiah who would come and usher in what the prophets call the day of the Lord. If you've ever read the prophets, you see that language, day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's when God would vindicate himself in the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. Of course, the Jewish people perceived the enemy to be Rome. They didn't see themselves to be sinful. They didn't see themselves to be the enemy of God. They perceived Rome to be the enemy. And so they wanted a Messiah who would come and deliver them from Rome. And that's what Jesus addresses today. He clarifies who the Messiah is. Now, the question is, why is this text important to us? Okay, Um, this is not a how to sermon. This sermon does not address principles for having a better marriage. Uh, much preaching you hear today, that's how they attract crowds. They, they just want to give you good advice for improving your, your bank account, your, your, your marriage, and your child rearing. This isn't one of those sermons. This isn't one of those texts. This is not a how-to text. This is a who text. Okay? Because the most important questions we really face today are not how to do something. We don't lack knowledge. There's a lot of information today. The real issue is, who is the Christ? Who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah? And what do we believe about this Christ? These are the central questions of every generation. Because the question of who the Christ is is related to the most of, uh, ultimate of our concerns, and that is our salvation. That is our salvation from the penalty of sin, uh, our salvation from the power of sin, and the, our salvation from the presence of sin. Uh, for the unbeliever, and I'm assuming that in a, a crowd this large, there are unbelievers. For the unbeliever, First John says, he who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, that's a very important statement because John, the one who writes that, has already written in the Gospel of John that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. 
And so John would tell you this morning that in order for you to have eternal life with God, you must be born again. And one of the great expressions of the new birth, one of the great expressions of being born again is repentance of sins and committed faith in Jesus as the Christ. Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ today? Have you brought all of your life, your finances, your time, your resources, your life under the lordship of Jesus the Christ? That's the evidence you've been born again. And for the believer, this text has great relevance to us. Because you see, our biggest spiritual issues today are not the things that happen outside of us. The things that happen to us. Your biggest issue is not your mate. It's not your parents, it's not your teacher, it's not your neighbor or co-worker. The biggest issues of life concern the heart. In fact, Paul uh, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that uh, you, speaking to the Corinthians, and their failure to love, their failure to obey, their failure to worship rightly, he says you are restricted by your affections. You are restricted by your affection. So, what does he say? Enlarge, widen your hearts. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the real issue concerns a lack of affection for the living God. The reason we don't worship fervently, the reason we don't give of our lives, our time, and our resources sacrificially is that we are restricted by our affections. We don't love God enough. And it shows itself at the horizontal level. Uh, or perhaps our affections are misplaced. They are set on vanity, on temporal things, on, on things that will not endure in the end. And therefore, it reflects itself in a kind of self-serving, selfish, self-absorbed kind of living. And Paul says the only cure for that is to widen your hearts. Which is interesting because medically, an enlarged heart is not a good thing. But spiritually, an enlarged heart is the key to fervent worship and sacrificial service to the living God. But therein presents a dilemma as well. How do you enlarge your heart? You can't just, by the force of the will, enlarge your heart so that your affections are not restricted. How do we enlarge our hearts well, we need to enlarge our capacities to be moved by the immeasurable glories of Jesus the Christ. And that's why this text is so important to us. As we behold the glory of Christ, our hearts are enlarged. Our hearts are widened. And we become what we behold. Now... At this point uh, in the narrative, uh, Jesus has cleansed the temple and all of these questions have been raised against him in order to, to snare him. There was a question about whose authority he was acting. By whose authority do you do these things? Then there was this trick question about where taxes were to be given, whether they were to be given to Caesar or, or not. And then last time we saw questions about the resurrection and marriage. And so Jesus at this point has really been on the defense. But with every question, he has answered them with the very infinite wisdom of God. And we saw last week in verse 40 
that uh, at the end of this questioning, they had no more questions. In fact, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Now Jesus is going to go on the offense. He's been on the defense and now he's going on the offense. Notice verse 41. But he said to them. Now they've been asking him questions. Now it's time for him to reciprocate. He said to them. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, a word about the word here, Christ. All right? We read it in our Bibles, but this is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Jesus Christ. This has great significance, this name. It literally means anointed one. Christ is anointed one. And the Hebrew equivalent is the word translated in our English Bibles, Messiah. And so Messiah uh, in Hebrew and Christ in Greek are the same word. It's the anointed one. Uh, the empowerment of the Spirit is why the hoped-for Savior would be called the anointed one. Isaiah 11 tells us that this stem, that is this shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, who is that? Jesse is David's father. Now, Isaiah is writing in a day when Judah will have fallen and uh, Israel and Judah has no king. There's no, no throne, no temple, and no worship in Jerusalem. And he says that a stem is going to arise from a stump, a cut off tree. And he will come from Jesse, it will be another David. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and counsel and might and the fear of the Lord. This is the anointed one, okay? And so that's what Christ means. <clears throat> and it essentially means, anointing means empowerment and appointment to act in God's place. Empowerment and appointment to act in God's place. That's what it meant uh, when their hope was bound up in the Christ, the Messiah. And here Jesus begins with something that they already knew that they were all in agreement with. The Messiah would be a physical descendant of David. Now this is just, no. this is Bible 101, okay? Um, this is more of a teaching type sermon, but it's important to understanding our Bible. The hope for Messiah would come from the line of David. And in particular, the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Now, this covenant, what we call the Davidic covenant, is a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God tells Abraham that through your offspring, through your seed, uh, I will bless the nations. Okay, I will bless you and I will bless the nations through your seed. And in that covenant with David, God is saying that the fulfillment of that covenant is going to be found in David's family. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read these words. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Now, God is speaking to David. I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come 
who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And so we see there that it's going to be a son of David through whom the Messiah, the kingdom would come. And then you can look over in Jeremiah chapter 30. Uh, We could go on and on here. I'm just giving you a couple of texts to take notes with. Chapter 30, verse 9, Jeremiah says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Now, guys, Jeremiah Jeremiah is writing some 400 years after David has died. And he is saying, In the day of the Lord, okay, when God vindicates His name and saves His people and judges His enemies, I'm going to raise up another David. It's not going to be reincarnation. It's another David. It's the son of David. He will be so bound up with this covenant that you will even call him David. And whom I will raise up for them. And then you can see in Ezekiel chapter 34, the same kind of language in verses 23 and 24. And I will set up over them. Keep in mind, Ezekiel went into uh, Babylonian captivity in 597 B.C. So he is writing some 400 years after David as well. And he says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And then, if you'll remember several, several months ago, several years ago, in fact, when we began the birth narrative of Luke, We saw this emphasis on the fact that Jesus must come from the house of David. Gabriel, in fact, comes to uh, the virgin in chapter 1, verse 27, Mary, and says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And then if you look in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And then if you look in verse 69 of the same chapter, you have this same language that's being used, this emphasis. uh, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and the lineage of David. And as you remember, when, when Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, what did blind Bartimaeus declare? He declared him the son of David. So in this day, in the first century, by this time, the son of David and Messiah, Christ, had become synonyms. They were waiting for Messiah, who was going to be a physical descendant of David. And so Messiah and Son of David are just equivalent terms. And that makes a a sense of Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16, when the spiritual leaders are just utterly provoked and upset because the children are honoring Jesus with the title Son of David. And so, uh, at this point in verse 41 of, of chapter 20, Jesus has begun a conversation with a thought that everyone agreed. That David, that is the son of David and the Messiah, would be the same person. How can they say that Christ is David's son? But here's where they got it wrong. 
They thought, and many Jews today think, that the Messiah, the son of David, would be just a mere man. A great man, but a mere man. Who would bring in, who would usher in a political kingdom. Okay? And so up to this point, they have agreed on the consensus that the Messiah would be from David. But now Jesus is going to stir things up a bit. He's going to complicate things starting in verse 42. He says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you know your Bible, you know he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's one of the most important messianic texts in the Old Testament. You say, what is a messianic text? A messianic text is one of those texts that prophesies the coming Messiah. There's many messianic texts in the Old Testament. And Psalm 110, verse 1, may be the most important. In fact, do you realize that Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most alluded to, cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament? It's alluded to or cited 33 times in the New Testament. And so it's very important. Now, in the context, Psalm 110 was a coronation hymn. All right? It was sung, it was recited by the people of God when the king of Judah was inaugurated as king. Okay? And so they would have sung this song. And the opening lines of this psalm are this. It's verbatim. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, in the original language, the first name for Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh says. Now, Yahweh is the covenantal name. It's the name that God gave Moses when Moses asked, what is your name? And God said, my name is Yahweh. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. This is my name forever. You can't get any clearer than that. We translate that in English, Lord. This is Yahweh. And yet here it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai. The first Lord there refers to what we would know as God the Father. Because we're Trinitarian. Alright? And so should they have been. So the first name for Yahweh there is for the Father. And here God, the Father, says to this second Lord... In the context, who would have been the king, representing God, the king uh, who is now being inaugurated as king. This is his coronation, and he was being coronated as God's vice regent, God's vice king, if you will. And God would set him on his right side, the right side of his throne. That's a figurative language, but it speaks to honor, dignity, and dominion. You remember in Genesis how Joseph was seated at the right hand of the Pharaoh? Joseph is 
representing Pharaoh with his rule and, and his administration in his kingdom. Okay? And so when Pharaoh wanted to bless someone, he, blessed, he blesses that person or that family through Joseph. All right? Joseph was the vice regent of the Pharaoh. And in the same way, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, was deemed the vice regent of God. As the king acts, God acts. Okay? And that's very important. That's very important for understanding the Old Testament. But what makes this so intriguing is that David nowhere calls a mere human after he was crowned king himself, Lord. Nowhere does God or David call a mere human Lord. And yet here is a person that is so great that the Davidic king, David himself, calls him Lord. In fact, in Psalm 110, there's no mention, if you read that psalm, of the Messiah being the son of David. Rather, he's the Lord of David. Alright? Now, this is mystifying because the Christ, as we've already established, was supposed to be David's son. That is a physical descendant of David. But in that culture... Fathers don't call their sons Lord. That's what makes this so intriguing. And that's behind the statement in verse 44. He says, David, verse 44, thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now remember last week uh, when Jesus was addressing the Sadducees, um, they were assuming that if there is a resurrection, then essentially uh, in the resurrection, it would be merely an extension of life in the present age. All right. The good things we experience in this life, we will experience in that life. All right. And in the same way, he's correcting the idea that the Messiah is simply an extension of David's line. All right. Uh, the prevalent view, as I've said, was that the son of David would be this great, charismatic human leader who would usher in a political kingdom, a lot like David's kingdom, when Israel experienced the height of their glory. See, the problem with Israel's leaders in this day, and today for that matter, the problem with Israel's leaders was that when they came to these texts, that spoke of the coming Messiah, they did not see these texts through spiritual lenses. For if they had, they would have seen that the Davidic prince to come, the Messiah to come, would have had to have been supra-human. Human, but more. And Psalm 110 makes that clear. But one of the great texts that makes that clear is Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, it's one of those texts that we sang at Christmas. And he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The son who would be born would be called Mighty God. And then you notice in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, 
there will be no end. He's going to bring in a reign of shalom that will be eternal in scope. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. So Isaiah is telling us. Maybe he's writing greater than he knows. I don't think so. I think Isaiah recognizes something here. That the the Messiah, the son of David, would indeed be a man. But he would be more than a man. I mean, this is a riddle. It's a riddle that can only be solved if the Savior, the Messiah, is fully God and fully man. And in fact, in one of the great remarkable texts in Revelation... Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. You have this remarkable language where Jesus, it says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David. What does it mean that he's the root of David? He created David. He's the origin of David. He's David's creator, but he's also David's son. Quite remarkable language. And this alone explains why David would call him Lord. I think David recognized something there. And I think this also shows us that in the Old Testament, there is this subtle idea that though God is one, monotheism, Israel hung on to monotheism. They protected it. There is a plurality in the Godhead. Uh, they didn't have the word Trinity. That wasn't coined for uh, you know, some three or four centuries after Jesus ascended to the Father. But the doctrine was there. B.B. Warfield says that the Trinity is in the Old Testament concealed. It's in the New Testament revealed. The Old Testament is like this... Um, richly furnished but dimly lighted chamber. God didn't change when He became a man. He just added human nature. Uh, God has always, eternally been triune. And so in the Old Testament, B.B. Uh, Warfield says that it's a richly furnished but dimly lighted chamber. And when the New Testament points its light on the Old Testament, we see that God has been triune all alone. Now, we could spend a whole month on this topic, but I want to give you my favorite text in the entire Old Testament that speaks to this idea. In Isaiah chapter 48, it is a remarkable text. First of all, Isaiah is speaking, then God is speaking, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this messenger of God is speaking. Look with me in verse 12 of Isaiah. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am first. I am the last. If you know your Bible, you know in Revelation, Jesus is described in these terms. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. The Lord loves him. Who is him? He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. 
I, even I, have spoken and called him. This is God speaking. So it goes from Isaiah speaking to God speaking. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. All of a sudden, the one who was sent, the man who will prosper in God's way, begins to speak. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. Wow. And now the Lord God, Yahweh, has sent me and His Spirit. Quite remarkable language. But if it wasn't clear then, it would certainly be made clear upon the resurrection from the grave. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he says, concerning God's Son, um, according to the flesh, He is from David. Descended from David. And He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at into this text. I realize it's a really uh, teachy text, but it's a very important text. Jesus, as he's asking this question about David's son, about Messiah, the Christ, as he's quoting Psalm 110, Jesus is making a subtle prophecy about his coming exaltation. What is his exaltation? Well, his exaltation consists in him rising from the grave on the third day and ascending up into heaven at the right hand of the Father and coming to judge the world in the last day. Um, Jesus knew he was at the end of his life. He knew that this was the week he was going to die for the, for the sins of his people. But he also knew that he was going to rise from the grave. He's already prophesied that in Luke. He knew that he was going to rise to the grave and rule at God's right hand. I think it's very clear here that resurrection is at the forefront of Jesus' mind. I mean, he's already spoken about the stone that the builders have rejected that becomes the chief cornerstone. And then last week we saw uh, the Sadducees speaking to him about the resurrection. And so then he takes them to attack Psalm 110 that clearly refers to his resurrected state. And this must have had some deep abiding impact on the apostles. As I said, it's the most cited verse in the entire Old Testament by the New Testament writers. Hebrews used it to show his superiority over the angels. He says, to which of the angels has it ever been said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And so when we consider Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, in its original context, and when we consider that it's the ful fulfillment, it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, it's clear that it's a reference to His position at the right hand of the Father where He rules and He reigns until He makes His enemies a footstool for His feet. In fact, if we could look at Luke chapter 22, in Luke chapter 22, in just a short time, 
when the Sanhedrin uh, has him at his trial and um, and they're asking him about whether he's the Christ. Verse 69, it says, from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Uh, Forty days after his resurrection, that's exactly what happens. Uh, Paul says that, that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Psalm 110. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And God appointed him to be head of the church, his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And as proof of this, God, through his son, sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. As Peter explains in Acts chapter 2. This is the last passage we'll look at. I realize we've looked at a million texts today. Uh, but this is important to knowing our Bibles. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. Don't look past that. When you see that language, it's citing Psalm 110 verse 1. Speaking of the Lord who sits at the Lord's right hand. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And yet... The verse also shows us that not all his enemies are yet under his feet. All right. It was accomplished in the cross and the resurrection where he crushed the serpent's head. And yet there is a progressive triumph in this reign. When he came the first time, he did not come to strike down the nations and rule with a rod of iron. As Revelation 19 tells us, he did not tread the winepress of the fury of the God Almighty. That awaits his return, okay? That awaits his return. But to escape his wrath on that day, we must flee to him. We must recognize him as the Christ and we submit to his rule. Knowing he's both... Uh, the son of David and um, Lord of the universe in one person isn't enough. You must hide yourself in Christ in desperate devotion. That's what we must do. Saving faith is not just this intellectual ascent. That's my, let me just tell you, this is a side note here. That's my biggest concern in Southern Baptist life. It's just this prayer we pray and we dunk them. And you know what we're dunking? Unregenerate people who engaged in magic. Salvation is spirit wrought, regenerate faith that expresses itself in utter commitment and desperate devotion. Now granted... At the very early stages of your spiritual life, you don't see that as clearly as you do 
after you have been conformed to Christ through the years. But there, it is there in seed form. Okay? And so, if you are to experience the benefits of Christ's redemption, you must flee to Him in repentance and faith. Now, He doesn't deal here with the ramifications of His Lordship, His Christship. Uh, no, we don't see that. We don't see Him calling them to, to respond to what He just said. But the implication is there. And the implication is this. If He is the Lord of someone as great as David... How much more should we submit to his lordship? Because here's the glory of this. When you submit to his lordship, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior comes to bear in your sin broken world. He comes to bear on your sin stained heart. He comes to bear on your sin stained marriage. He comes to bear on your sin-stained parenting. He comes to bear in your sin-stained world. He has come to make all things new. That's what it means to find our hope in the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah. He is the Lord of David. More importantly, He is the Lord of all. And if you ignore that, if you reject His kingdom because you feel like you have a better kingdom you can serve that's going to offer you all the delights of your heart, in the end, when your kingdom is brought under the feet of Jesus, it will not matter what kingdom you chose instead. But if you will submit to Him, if you will bow the knee to the Christ, the Messiah, He's going to erupt into your life and He's going to transform every sin-broken aspect of your life. That's why our hope is in a Messiah. The Spirit-anointed Messiah. And here is the glory of being in Christ. That is, when you repent of your sins and trust Christ, you're united to Him. And 1 John 2 tells us, His anointing, His anointing becomes your anointing. He says you will receive anointing, and this anointing will abide in you. Which means, there is no aspect of your existence that Jesus the Christ will not come to bear on. Which means, we have nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be fearful about, everything to be joyful about. That's what it means to worship. Recognizing Christ the Lord, Jesus the Christ, Yes, the son of David, 